In the midst of a pandemic that brought the global world to a standstill, 2020 also became a year that will go down in history as a year of an awakening of a call for racial justice. It started in the US, but of course it spread north of the border and beyond. How does someone even begin to talk about what it means for the gospel to be good news for racial justice? How do I even begin to talk about it? Over the course of the past week or so, I've had this line from a mid 90s DC talk song running through my head. What if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I lose my step and I make fools of us all? Well, one of the things that I've learned recently is that this is just a risk that we need to take if we want to play even a small part in bringing about God's shalom to our small corner of the world. So a disclaimer before we get going here. Most of what needs to be talked about on this theme will not be talked about this morning. There are going to be things you wish I would have said. There are going to be things that I mentioned just so briefly and then move on. The intention is not to cover everything here. It's not to dive super deep, but it's to introduce us to this topic, or at least to help us move a little further down the path. What is my hope? Well, my hope is to be able to help draw a line between our desire as followers of Jesus to bring good news to our world and the opportunities that are right in front of us to engage in the work of racial justice. The conversation doesn't end when I stop talking either. Of course, as we do each week, there'll be an opportunity to talk after this sermon in our neighbors groups. Uh, but we've also set up a separate time. Our pastoral team will be on a call on Tuesday evening at 7.30 for an hour, and we'd invite you to join that. The link should be in the comments now, and we'll send that out on our weekly email on Tuesday afternoon. We also want to let you know that in the spring, we'll be offering a course to further explore what it means to engage racial justice. And to tell you more about that, I'm going to pass it over to Melissa Burke. So we've been exploring the concept of what it means to embody justice. Some of you may remember an interview with Drew Brown back in the fall, where we talked about this idea around the importance of not just pursuing justice, but embodying justice and what that means. Irv Weens, in a sermon around this topic of justice that he shared well over a year ago at Elevation, Describe justice as first and foremost a relational term. It is about people living in right relationship with God, with one another, and with creation. So as we started to have more intentional conversations this past summer about what it would look like for us to both pursue and embody racial justice here at Elevation, we have been so blessed to have this woman providing guidance and leadership for all of us. For those of you who may not know her, this is Fanis Juma, and she has been a part of the Elevation community for many years. She is also one of the leading and prominent voices and leaders for racial justice and equity in our local community. Many of you have had a much longer history in relationship with Fanis than I have, but I can tell you that even in the short time that I have spent with Fanis, she has quickly become a grace-filled mentor and treasured friend. Through her work with the African Community Wellness Initiative, Fanis has developed a course called Racial Justice and Equity Practices for Faith and Spiritually Based Institutions, an introductory course for community members. And she donated her time and expertise to lead some of our leadership community through a pilot of this course this past fall. The course's objectives include gaining an increased awareness of one's own personal and collective social and historical locations in relation to racial power and privilege, 
and becoming familiar with both policy considerations for advancing institutional equity in faith community settings, as well as racial equity skills for relationship building with diverse populations. It has been such a meaningful experience for many of our leadership team to enter into or continue this work with the profound understanding that we are really just beginning. FANIS will be facilitating the course online again this spring, and we would love to see many of our Elevation community take part. We are continuing to iron out the details on that and we'll share them with you as they become available. But in the meantime, a few of those who took the course this fall have shared some thoughts around their own learning. Let's hear some reflections now from Kristen, Melly, and Brennan. One of the things that struck me about the course was when our wonderful and sage guide, Fanis, would talk about Jesus. She would always refer to him by his Hebrew name, his original name, Yeshua. And that got me to wondering why we don't use the name Yeshua more often, because the name Jesus uh, is actually the anglicized version of Yeshua. And that got me thinking about how language can situate Jesus as white in our imagination in a subconscious way, and how that then shapes how we think about ourselves as white people and our moral legitimacy in the world. And so something I've started doing since the course is just a little thing, but in my personal uh, devotional time and prayer time, I'm uh, going back to calling Jesus by his given name, Yeshua, as a way of trying to step outside of language and how it positions Jesus as white in my, in my imagination and trying to get back to a clear picture of who Jesus actually was. Good morning, Elevation. I'm Melody, and I had the privilege of participating in the racial justice course this fall. I continue to process the many things that I learned and the ways that I continue to be challenged to commit to this important work of justice. And so there are just two things that I'd like to share with you this morning about my experience in the course. One of the course objectives was to grow in our awareness of our own location and position in relation to power and privilege. We were given the opportunity to share a little bit of our family history, and I found this practice really helpful in locating myself and my family and our story within the larger history and story of racial injustice. It helped me to grow in my awareness of my privilege and power and how those things shape the way that I see and walk in the world. I think that this self-awareness is a really important part of the work of racial justice. The second thing that I'll share with you is around the reflection I've been doing on how racial injustice has and continues to shape theology. We read a book by James Cone, a black theologian called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. One of the things he talked about was the theological blind spots that emerge when our theology is shaped by only white voices. I was reflecting on a church history class that I took um, and how many of the theologians that we talked about in that course were white. Um, in his book, Cohn made the important point that our theology and therefore our understanding of God is incomplete without the voices of those who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And so this has challenged me to be more intentional about choosing to interact with diverse voices when I'm, say, choosing books or podcasts or even who to follow on social media. Hey everyone, it's Brennan here. I just wanted to say that I'm really hopeful 
that you know every single person that is able to attend the next racial justice course at elevation chooses to do so um you know for for me i think the thing that was so important to to realize is that we don't know what we don't know and you know it's uh so important for us to begin this journey of trying to uncover these things we don't know and trying to begin this process of learning because we don't really understand even the ways in which we unintentionally exclude others from our community. And uh, so I just want to encourage you to begin this process. Once you start, I promise you, you won't stop. Um, you will spend a lot of time reflecting, a lot of time thinking and processing, some time grieving, um, but also some time feeling hopeful. And so I can also tell you that there's nobody more compassionate or gracious to lead us through this process than Faneth. And she's been such a positive uh, influence in my life and had a huge impact on the way that I approach this kind of work and thinking in these relationships. So I really hope to, uh, to see you at a future racial justice session. In Ken Weitzman's book, The Myth of Equality, I learned a lot about the long history of racial injustice in the U.S. context, but it also passed on to me um, and the importance of acknowledging that this isn't just history we're reading about. One of the things that stood out to me, and I can remember reading this out loud to my family because I could hardly believe it, was that in the state of Alabama, interracial marriage was actually banned until the year 2000. Like, can you even wrap your head around that? Uh, one of the more striking things about that information is that when they voted to, to remove this ban, to lift this ban, actually 41% of the people who voted wanted to keep the ban in place. It's unbelievable. This is only 20 years ago. Now, when we think about racial injustice, there are certain things that come to mind. We tend to think about the history of the transatlantic slave trade. We might have images of cotton fields in the deep south and maybe movies that we've seen or books that we've read about those themes and those times of history. But even when slavery was outlawed, everything about the way that society was orchestrated from financial systems to city planning, it leaned heavily in favor of the white majority. I want to read uh, a section from James Cohn's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which was the text that we used in the course last fall. He writes that nearly one third of black men between the ages of 18 and 28 are in prisons, jails, on parole, or waiting for their day in court. Nearly one half of the more than two million people in prisons are black. That is one million black people behind bars, more than in colleges. Through private prisons and the war against drugs, whites have turned the brutality of the racist legal system into a profit-making venture for dying white towns and cities throughout America. I was thinking about this image that I saw this week. It's kind of this gnarly old tree stump and, and its shadow. And I was thinking about how the shadow accurately reflects 
the shape and the shape casts a shadow that looks exactly like itself. And I think when we think about the long history of racial injustice in our world and what we see today, they mirror each other. The situation that we see today is a reflection of a long past that comes before us. Ken Weitzman describes racism as the diminishment of worth in men and women in and through bias, systems, and power structures that disadvantage them in tangible ways based on skin color. Now, we can talk about the history, we can talk about the US, but these kind of biases, they take place right here close to home. I wasn't surprised at all when I read the following headline just a couple of days ago. I'm scared every day, says Montreal driver stopped by police dozens of times. The article goes on to tell an unfortunately familiar story about racial profiling and how this man has been stopped up to 15 times in a month um, because he is suspected of doing one thing or the other. He talked about how cautious he is, but it doesn't seem to matter. And this is our country, our day. Stories like these, and of course stories that are much worse, demand our attention. Reflecting on Eric Garner's 2014 choking death in New York City, which uh, it provides an eerie parallel to George Floyd's own death this past summer, Tanahisi Coates writes, it is not necessary that you believe that the officer set out that day to destroy a body. All you need to understand is that the officer carries with him the power of the American state and the weight of an American legacy. And they necessitate that of the bodies destroyed every year, some wild and disproportionate number of them will be black. It's important for us to grow in our awareness of the faults and the shortcomings of other institutions, absolutely. But we can't avoid turning the eye on our own. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the US. King famously referred to an 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning as the most segregated hour in Christian America. And the church continues to carry that legacy to a large degree all these decades later. Last January, we were casting some five-year-long vision for our church community. And one of the areas that we talked about was becoming a more diverse community. So I stood up in front of our church community, as I'm unfortunately not quite able to do to now, and I talked about the idea of um, what I would like to be able to say five years out. So 2025, I'm standing up, I'm reflecting back on the last five years this is one of the things that I wanted to be able to say. When I look out at the congregation on a Sunday morning, I see a community that is so much more diverse than we were five years ago. I remember growing uncomfortable with just how middle-class and white our community was. It sounds harsh to put it that way, but we all knew we were missing out on something significant by not having other voices at the table. So our invitation is to take a good look at our own community and our own lives and invite the Holy Spirit to bend us towards God's vision for a more just world. Because God's vision for justice is nothing new. It has been long-standing. God's words are recorded by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ. In Isaiah 42, verse 1 and 4, Here is my servant, God said, speaking about the, the, his son who would be sent into the world centuries later. Here is my servant whom I, I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. This is God's vision and we are invited to participate in it. Over the Christmas holidays, I read a book that my daughter Sophia decided to read for her high school English project. I thought it'd be a good opportunity. I mean, I had a little more free time over the holidays and I thought it'd be a good opportunity for us to be able to talk about some of the themes that came up as she was doing her project. 
Uh, it was the story by a Canadian author. And as I began to realize very early on in the story, it was written um, from the vantage point of someone who is essentially my own age. Uh, and they, he grew up in Scarborough, so just an hour down the 401. And the reason I could tell that he was around my age were the cultural references that he made. So he talked about growing up watching the Dukes of Hazard on TV. He talked about listening to the music of Rush. And he talked about hanging out at 7-Eleven. I'm like, you're kind of describing my early adolescence there. One of the things that uh, I found as the book went on, though, is that while I was able to identify with him, this person who was born the same time as me, lived only an hour away from me, as the story began to unfold, I realized just how incredibly different the world that he grew up in was. An important early step on the road to the kind of justice that God spoke about through Isaiah is to position ourselves to listen and learn from the experiences of others. Um, I want to say two or three years ago, I attended a racial justice net justice network circle at the Kitchener Public Library at the invitation of Fannis, who you were introduced to earlier. One of the people in that circle, and I'm telling you, man, I, I felt really out of place in that room. I felt like I had nothing to contribute. I, I was learning so much. It was just like a fire hose to the face. It was so good. Uh, one of the people sitting around that circle told a story about how she was the first black teacher in Waterloo Region School Board. And I thought, I can't believe I'm sitting here listening to the story of someone and the experiences that she would have had in her life and trying to carve away in her vocation. Uh, so a little later on in the conversation, she made reference to a book and she said, anyone who wants to understand a kind of racial justice in Ca Canadian context needs to read this book about this Nova Scotian civil rights leader named Rocky Jones. And so of course, as soon as I got home, I, I put it on hold at the library and picked it up because I was like, just wanted to learn so much from these people who have experiences that I don't have in life. Sometimes it's uh, by reading an article. Someone in our church community forwarded me an article about uh, the members of a thriving black community in the 1800s who were driven from their land just north of Waterloo in what we affectionately refer to as Mennonite country. Before the Mennonites were here, there was this thriving black community in Queens Bush, and I had never heard of that. And it was so humbling for me to read a story about this in my own backyard. Um, this is part of the learning experience that we all have in front of us. Now, as we begin uh, to engage in conversations like this and try to learn more about racial justice, I'll tell you two things that I can pretty much guarantee. The first is that you will be overwhelmed. You'll be overwhelmed with some of the language and the, the topics. You'll be overwhelmed probably emotionally by some of the things you're hearing. Um, there is a lot to this. But the second thing I can pretty much guarantee is that you will feel more alive. You will feel more human because it seems like, I guess what my experience has been, it's like I'm starting to live in a little bit more of the real world, I guess is how I might put it. And so there's something that makes you feel alive about that. There's this great quote from George Bernard Shaw. He says, you have learnt something that always feels at first as if you had lost something. And maybe it's our naivety that we lose. Or maybe it's a perceived innocence that we lose. But as Shaw suggests, these are the signs that we are le learning something. It's a necessary first step along this path. Uh, I've talked before uh, in the context of a sermon about research that's been done into implicit bias, which refers to the attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, our actions, and our decisions, but in an unconscious manner. There's something that was developed called the implicit association test. And you can actually look this up online and do this test. Essentially, they put a number of different people or categories with words, and they give you this, this score at the end of it, which tells you how biased you are in favor of or against certain people groups. For example, most people will find it easier to associate old people with bad and young people with good. 
and that includes the elderly. Now, the implicit biases that we have, they're not character flaws. Um, even the elderly are biased against the elderly. Racial minorities often show bias against their own racial group. But it's important for us to be able to understand that we have these biases and that we carry them into the world with us. Ken Weitzma in The Myth of Equality again writes that instead of putting energy into denying that we're racist, a more transparent and honest response might be to admit our desire to be free from racist thinking and commit ourselves to searching for latent forms of bias within ourselves and trying to address them. There's this great passage in Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament of our Bible. It says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So the more work that we can do to exposing what's lying below the surface in our own lives, it will help us see as we walk forward. We're going to come across uh, words and phrases that maybe make us feel a little uncomfortable or we don't understand. Uh, back in the summer, we talked about anti-racism. Anti-racism is a word that helps express the fact that being that not being racist actually isn't enough. And, and I think that's this is what I would have said. I would have said, well, I'm not racist, but not being racist isn't enough because it's too passive an approach at a time when action is required. Uh, or maybe you'll hear something like white supremacy. White supremacy, when I have thought about it prior to say the past year or two, would have been thinking about something like the KKK or these newly rising extremist groups. But that's not what white supremacy is really all about. Uh, as an example, Lisa Sharon Harper in her book, The Very Good Gospel, writes uh, that the only racial category on the national census that did not change between 1790 and 2010 was white. In the United States, whiteness is the centerpiece around which all else revolves. Now, if you want an example of this, here's a picture that doesn't seem to have much to do with racial justice. It's a picture of kind of the protesters and rioters at the Capitol. Uh, these are images that we all saw in the news, on social media, of course. Um, but something was drawn to my attention, you know, in the hours that this was unfolding that I have to admit I did not notice at first. Uh, Doc Rivers, who's an NBA head coach, uh, made this observation. He said, I will say it because I don't think a lot of people want to. Can you imagine today? if those were all black people storming the Capitol and what would have happened. That to me is a picture that's worth a thousand words. But again, we can't let our focus get too far away from our own location. If we continue to look south of the border, if we continue to look at other people and the mistakes that they make, uh, we'll take the focus off, off of ourselves. But what about our own location? At the end of the racial justice course that I participated in along with others from our church in the fall, we had to do this I say we had to do because it was a difficult assignment. We were given an opportunity to do this assignment where we were to reflect on what we had learned and on where we were at in this whole thing. Um, and so one of the sentences that I had to complete as every participant had to complete was white supremacy shows up in my practice in the following ways. Now just think about how daunting a sentence that is. You have to admit that you actually are participating in this. And so I actually thought that I'd read my response for you this morning. So white supremacy shows up in my practice in the following ways, primarily drawing from the teachings and experiences of people of European descent in my continuing education and reinforcing the primacy of these voices in my teaching. It shows up in defaulting to values and methodology that I am most comfortable with. And it shows up by missing opportunities to extend leadership or voice to racialized people in our own community. Now, all of this is referred to as waking up being awakened. A reminder that our journey is just the beginning. It's like 7am. The words of Thomas Merton written in 1965 really ring true to me. 
He says the race question cannot be settled without a profound change of heart, a real shake-up and real deep-reaching metanoia, which is a Greek word for repentance or change of mind. So a deep-reaching metanoia on the part of white America. It is not just a question of little more goodwill and generosity. It is a question of waking up to crying injustices and deep-seated problems which are ingrained in the present setup and which, instead of getting better, are going to get worse. And they certainly have in the decades since he wrote those words. Now to this morning's reading from Ephesians chapter 2. This is a letter that Paul wrote uh, to a church in the Mediterranean in the first century. He writes about Jesus saying, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now in Paul's context, the two groups he was referring to were Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles being a catch-all word for anyone who wasn't a Jew. Now what we can't miss about this powerful claim is how Jesus did this. How did he break down the dividing wall of hostility? The passage says, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now I don't want to move too fast over that. What does it mean for Jesus to set aside the law and its regulations in his flesh? What Jesus did was take away the former way of things that divided people from one another and prevented access to God's shalom. And he carried those with him all the way to the cross. He embodied God's call for justice in our world. I want to continue to read from Ephesians 2. This is verse 15 and 16. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, it doesn't matter which two we're talking about. We could be talking about the division between humanity and creation. We could be talking about the division between women and men or between liberals or conservatives or millennials and boomers or a white majority and racialized people. It doesn't matter which of the two we're talking about. What we understand is that Jesus came to break those barriers and those walls down. That is what it looks like to establish justice, to bring justice to the nations. I want to read again from Cohn. Um, he says in this book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, the gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair, as revealed in the biblical and black proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. You see, Paul's letter here is addressed to people who had been kept on the outside. And so this, division, this breaking down of the wall, this is good news to them. But it's good news for people on both sides of any divided wall. Paul goes on to say that in him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is a vision that God has. And I saw like a, a piece of that vision, a small little piece of that in the news. Um, Raphael Warnock, who's a pastor at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, where decades ago, Martin Luther King Jr. pastored. Um, he was the winner in one of Georgia's runoffs elections. And we'll talk more about politics next week. But he had this great observation when he talked about what it was like to see his mother come out to vote. 
He said the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. It reminded me of this passage from Romans 4, which refers to God as the one who calls into being things that were not. Things that were not possible now become possible. And we have a part to play in this. In the very good gospel, Lisa Sharon Harper, she she talks about five different things that we can do. And I'm not going to unpack them all, but I want to mention them because I think that the, the headings are enough to get us thinking. She talks about the fact that we can become aware. She says, grow your empathy. Immerse yourself with people who are different from you. Take every thought captive and forsake race, even if it means forsaking some of the privilege that comes along with it. I was listening to a song this week by the band We the Kingdom, and there was a line that stuck out to me. It said, I'm not yet where I'm going, but I'm a long way from where I was. It's kind of how I feel, and I'm sure it's how a lot of us feel. And so I want to invite you to continue this journey as we do as a community of faith. Once again, jump on the hot discussion call at the end of the sermon here this morning. We'd invite you to join us on Tuesday evening again at 7.30. Visit our website, check out the anti-racism page for some more resources, and stay tuned because we'd love to have a lot of people hop on the spring course that we'll be holding. Two primary challenges that I see for our church community moving forward. The first is the variety of spaces that people will enter this conversation from. We're all at a different place and it can be overwhelming. Sometimes we can be frustrated at how slow people move and sometimes we can be frustrated at how fast people are moving. We need to extend grace to one another and commit to the journey regardless. The second thing that concerns me or the challenge that I think is a challenge for us is that this work uh, requires concerted effort. It really develops over time and there's this risk of fatigue, of growing tired of it, of wanting the results to happen quickly. And so we need to be patient. We need to steadily walk forward, but understand that we can't give in to the fatigue that we'll face along the way. I want to close with a quote that I heard uh, on a podcast I listened to a couple of weeks ago. It was an interview on uh, Krista Tibbett's show with Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is a uh, a lawyer who advocates for death row inmates, uh, made famous by his book and the movie by the same title, Just Mercy. He said at one point, I am persuaded that hopelessness is the enemy of justice, that if we allow ourselves to become hopeless, we become part of the problem. I think you're either hopeful or you're the problem. There's no neutral place. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. So let us pray. God, I pray that you would inspire us with hope. The same way that you cast that vision to Isaiah, the same way that Jesus cast a vision for us and, and bore the vision in his body. God, I pray that you would give us hope for the better future and that you would inspire us by your spirit to engage in the good work of bringing justice to our world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Dive into some good conversation. Enjoy the rest of your week. Peace to you.